I want to speak today on the creative power of change. Change is inevitable. The only thing that doesn't change is change. It just goes on and on and on and on. Uh, some people want change. Some people don't. Mark Twain said, the only people that want a change are babies with a wet diaper, which I suppose is true. But there may be others in this room who want uh, some change in their heart, their life, the manner of their living, the direction of their lives, a change in their life. Uh, two granddaughters, Avery and Megan, uh, spent the night with us a few nights ago, and they had a new dog. Their dog had disappeared, and so uh, Steve went down, and the two girls got a, a new dog, uh, a golden retriever beautiful dog named Honey. Well, they didn't want to be out of the company of that dog, even though they were spending the night with us. <laughs> so we had Avery and Megan and Honey at our house. To say the least, it was a very, very interesting evening. And we had to get up early the next morning to get them to school by 8.30, and of course they wanted the dog to go along. They wanted their class to at least see their new dog, which they did. Well, they got in the back seat. They haven't had the dog but two or three days. They got in the back seat. Avery was over here. Megan was over here. And the dog was in between them. And because Avery had had the leash, the dog had her head in Avery's lap. And over on the other end was where Megan was. And Megan said, Why do I always get the tail? He wanted to have that dog turned around. Well, I can understand that. Uh, each generation has uh, a desire for change or a frustration uh, for, uh, for change. It's amazing how many things have changed in our lifetime, isn't it? Unbelievable. When I had this eye problem, I asked the doctor, I said, if I'd had this problem 50 years ago, would I have been blind? He said, yes, you would have been. He said, probably even 30 years ago, you would have gone blind because my eye filled with blood and there wasn't anything I could do about it. Now they can. He said the laser, the laser was not invented until 1965. I remember going to the hospital way back years ago to see people who had cataract surgery and they were in a hospital bed with pillows on either side of their head and they couldn't move their head and they couldn't move their body for I don't know how many days for that kind of cataract surgery. Now you can go in in the morning and you're, you're, you're through in the afternoon. It's simply incredible, the marvelous changes that have taken place. Telephones. Telephones. Uh, how, just, for, just for my own interest, how many of you have a cell phone? May I see your hand? Nearly everybody in here. Well, I remember growing up when we had a party line. Did any of you remember that? Yeah, well, and you'd always try to listen in on what the other... <laughs> And sometimes you got some very unfriendly comments uh, directed uh, toward you. I can remember when you had to call the operator uh, to get a number. I go to my grandparents' house over in Greenville, and you had to crank the thing. Uh, and now we have cell phones. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, we went with the Sound Foundation on three trips to Eastern Europe and to Europe. And we'd been behind the Iron Curtain, and we'd come back, and we were in London and had given a concert and had a service. 
uh, out in the south part of London, and all the kids were tired after we got on the bus, and it was a long drive back to the to the hotel. And uh, Leroy Yarbrough, and uh, who was our minister of music then, and Charlie Hamill, who was our student minister then, uh, and I, and uh, some other sponsors were along. And we went by. I didn't know we were going to pass it. We went by the tabernacle, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached for about 40 years. One of the greatest preachers in the English language that ever lived. Every preacher reads Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In fact, when I was in the in the home of uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen at his invitation to visit with him a number of years ago, he had the 20 volumes of uh, Spurgeon sermons, uh, the same uh, ones uh, that I have. And I asked him, do you read them? He said, I read them uh, all the time. He said, a great, great preacher. Well, they were having a Bible study there, and it had broken up, and people were leaving, but the lights were still on, and the few people still in there, and I said, I asked the bus driver, please stop, please stop. Uh, and he stopped, and Charlie and Leroy and I got off and ran in there. I just wanted to be in the place where that great preacher had preached. Well, I didn't realize, none of us did, that Stephen, then about 12, was along with us, and he got off with us, but I didn't know that. And we went in there, and we looked at a statue of Spurgeon there and had some pictures and all. It was badly bombed during the, uh, World War II, but it, uh, the facade and the foyer and all was still intact. And so we said, okay, it's time to go. Everybody's sleeping. Let's go get on the bus. So we went out, and we jumped on the bus, and we were driving along. We came up to uh, it was a little foggy by then, little uh, Big Ben. You could see Big Ben in the fog. And Steve was always taking pictures even then long before he ever got into television. I said, Steve, look at Big Ben. Look at that. That's terrific. No voice, no response. Steve, Steve was not on that bus. He'd gotten off and gone in that church with us. I told the bus driver, I said, let me off. I'm going to run back. I've got to get back. He said, I can get you back there faster than you can run. So he whipped that bus around. We went back. And we got out, and we were all looking. There was a police station just around the corner. We ran around there. Leroy and Charlie and I going everywhere to try to find Steve. No sight of him. Uh, a, a couple walked up to us and said, Are you looking for a little boy? And we said, Yes, desperately so. He said, Well, we saw him chasing the bus for about two blocks. <laughs> and I, it hurts me to this day to even think about that. He chased the bus. And then he came back, and this couple, God sent them. There's no question about it. God sent them, and they asked him uh, what's happened, and he told them. And they said, do you know the hotel you're staying in? He said, yes, I do, and he told them the name. So they got a taxi, and they told the taxi cab driver, take this young man to that hotel, and they'll pay for your fare when you get there. And uh, so Steve got in the back of that taxi, and it was about a 20 or 25-minute ride over to our hotel. And... Uh, I was terrified. I didn't know what kind of, who's that taxi driver? Where would they go? What would they do with that little boy? And we stopped there in front of the hotel. Well, in the meantime, he had gotten there and knocked on the door, and Martha couldn't go that night because Lisa was ill, so she'd stayed in the hotel and knocked on the door, and Martha opened the door, and there was Steve, and he suddenly just flooded in tears. And Martha said, what happened? And she was told by Stephen what had happened. Well, when I got off the bus and went to the room, it was not a happy time in our household uh, for a while. Well, 
Steve was doing chapel out at our school at Mission Springs uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling that story about being left alone. And say, you know, at 12 years of age or younger, we have 86 students out there. And I said, you know, it's, it's frightening to be left alone and you don't know anybody. He said, but you know what? God will always be with you and he will help you. And he'll send somebody to you to bring you through it. And he was telling that story. And Michael Buckner Fanning Jr., Miguelito, was in the kindergarten. And he was sitting right there listening to that story and knowing that Steve was his uncle. He kind of interrupted him while Steve was telling that story. And Michael said, didn't you have a cell phone? <laughs> Boy, they growing up in a different world that you and I uh, grew up in. Change. Some people it's good, some people it's bad. There's some people that are opposed to change. It's inevitable, but they're still opposed to change. I think I've told you the story about the young preacher who went to be pastor of a church and he was just his first Sunday or two there, and the senior deacon of that church, been a deacon there for 40 years or more, and the young man was trying to kind of find his way along, and I can tell you that's a nervous sort of experience you go through. What's he going to be like, and how am I going to get to know these people, and vice versa? And so he was trying to find out all he could, and he said to that senior deacon, he said, well, uh, sir, I, I know you've been here a long time. He said, yes, I've been here over 40 years. And the young preacher said, well, I guess you've seen a lot of changes. He said, yes, I have, and I've been against every single one of them. So unfortunately, that can happen. We change. Uh, I just recently found out that our stomach lining sales uh, recycle. We have new sales every two or three days. Blood sales and, sin and skin sales renew every three weeks. We're changing all of the time. The children of Israel had had, a, they'd had a remarkable existence for 40 years in spite of the fact that they could have gotten into Israel in 11 days, into the promised land uh, in about 10 or 11 days. You know the story. They got up there and they formed a committee. And uh, the committee went in and 10 voted against going in and only two said we can do it. So God was not happy with that. And... Uh, the biggest mistake Moses made, I think, was to appoint a committee. But nevertheless, he did. And so as a result of the majority recommendation from the committee, they wandered for 40 years in the desert, and none of those who voted against going in got in. The two who voted for going into the Promised Land, as you know, were Joshua and Caleb. And uh, they led the children of Israel then into the Promised Land. But listen, for 40 years... For 40 years, they didn't have to worry about food. They had manna from heaven. No one knows exactly what it was. Quail. They had food every day. They had water every day. Their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. Their shoes didn't wear out. They had a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm and a cloud by day to keep them cool from the hot desert sun. And then suddenly they go into the promised land and they have to take it. It wasn't given to them on a platter. They, first thing they did, they had to conquer Jericho. And you know that story. They had to conquer that land. They had to learn how to grow food. They had to learn how to make clothes. 
They had to learn how to make shoes. They had to be creative. They had to be innovative to make a difference in the future. And so does this church always need to be creative and innovative and looking forward to always moving into the land which we occupy because it changes. It's changing rapidly. It's changing by the second. And so you and I need to be up to date. We need to be sensitive to the world in which we live. And we need to be tailoring our ministries in this church to reach the world we have, not the world we had 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago when I came here. It's dramatically changed. So we have to have minds that are flexible. God save us from having psychosclerosis. You know what arteriosclerosis is? It's the hardening of the arteries. Psychosclerosis is the hardening of the categories. We're afraid to change a mood, change a method, change a program, change a direction to make a difference in the world in which we live. So, spiritual change is the basic change that must take place in every single one of our lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, let me read it to you. You've heard it. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, it's gone. All things are become new. And all of this is from God, who reconciled, now keep that word in mind, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, that's us, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Isn't that a great statement? God doesn't count our sins against us. He's not a divine bookkeeper. Count, not counting our sins against us. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore talking to the church, not to just pastors and evangelists and missionaries, talking to you and to me and all of us. We are therefore God's ambassadors. As though God himself is speaking through us, working through us, making his appeal through us. Paul writes, We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in Holy Scripture would you read the statement that God needs to be reconciled to us. Never. We may leave him. He does not leave us. We may reject him. He does not reject us. You do not have to try to get God's grace. You do not, do not have to try to overcome God's reluctance. You do not have to get God reconciled to you. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about God being reconciled to us, but over and over and over again about our being reconciled to God. He has not moved. We have. And he does not count our sins against us. He forgives us. We come to him and we have the promise of his forgiveness and the promise of his unending eternal grace. If anybody be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. All things are become new. Now, I want this new creation, 
this new person. And I've been reading, rereading Paul Tillich's book, uh, The New Being. And he's one of the three or four greatest uh, theologians of the last 100 years. And he says so very strongly that our new, birth, our new being, our becoming a new person, has absolutely nothing to do with any kind of religion whatsoever. And he lists all of the different religions of the world. And then he comes to the Christian religion. And he talks about creeds. And he talks about covenants. He talks about certain words, certain phrases, certain things that a person has to do before they can belong to the fellowship. And he says all of those get in the way of becoming a new person. And he says this and underlines it in Ephesians. I'm, in, in Galatians, excuse me. The last chapter of Galatians. Sixth chapter of Galatians. Fifteenth verse. Now he's been talking about circumcision. Now circumcision was a symbol of being becoming a Jew. Now you can substitute circumcision for anything that we say a person has to do before they can be a follower of Christ. Because in Paul's day, there were those who said, okay, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be a Jew first, or you have to be, rec you have to be circumcised. Paul says, no, 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 you don't have to. Now, today, that's not an issue with us. But there are things across the last 2,000 years of Christian history that people have substituted other things in there that we have to do before we are reconciled to God, before we can be a new person. And so all the religions of the world have certain things that they have to do before they can get God's favor, certain things they have to do to curry God's approval. And even in Christianity, if you're not baptized in a certain way, if you don't interpret Scripture the certain way that the pastor does, all of these various things that can be conditions for becoming a Christian, listen, my friend, not one single one of those or all of them together has a thing in the world to do with our becoming a new person in Christ Jesus that is done by Him through our faith and our faith alone. 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 Listen to what he says. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. You can put in there baptism. You can put in there uh, conditional interpretations of the scripture. You can put in there this denomination or that denomination. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts, he says, is a new creation. And peace and mercy to follow all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. And that's his term for describing the church, the Israel of God. In the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, in that first verse, which you probably are aware of and can quote, Therefore I urge you, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Renewing. Tillich points out something that I want to underline, I want you to put in your mind too. Take those two, two letters, that little prefix, R-E. R-E. 
Romans 12, 1. Let me read another passage of Scripture from Philippians, starting with the... Uh, well, let me see. I want to start with the, with the uh, seventh verse of the third chapter of Philippians. But whatever was to my prophet, Paul writes, boy, and he had a lot to his credit. Hebrew of the Hebrews, devoted Jew. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. He uses a much more earthy word than that, dung. And he uses even an earthier word than that. I consider them rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from rules, from regulations, from stipulations. None of that. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I hope it's registered in your mind the number of words that I have read from Holy Scripture that begin with that prefix R-E. Renewal, reconciliation, reunion, resurrection. We call it resurrection. Resurrection. And resurrection is not just something that returns us from the dead. What Christ comes to do is to come now through resurrection power to return us to life, to his life. And having the resurrected power of Jesus Christ in our lives now is a sure certainty and guarantee of our having a resurrection from the dead. And our resurrection from the dead is predicated clearly and simply and positively upon being resurrected, resurrected, renewed, reconciled right here, right now, today. Renew. Reconcile. Reunion. Resurrection. Returned from the dead? Yes. Returned to life? Returned from the dead someday? Yes. Returned to life? Today. Right here, right now, today. I want to read you a letter that I have received just in the past few days. The person that wrote it, if you're here, I certainly will not call your name. But it is a beautiful letter that I have written April the 11th of this year. Dear Reverend Fanning and Trinity Congregation, as a recent client of the Mulberry Alpha program and now client of the outpatient programs, I owe you all a debt 
of gratitude. Your support and Christian charity for we women involved in the Alpha program is so deeply appreciated by so many of us. I would like to thank each and every one of you for caring about us and loving us when at a time we were incapable of loving ourselves. I would also like to thank Janet Little, our church hostess, but she does. All these ministries that you don't even know about, many of them. I would also like to thank Janet Little for her unselfish time in Bible study for us women so very needing of spiritual uplifting. My tangible appreciation to you and to those in my life and family is in my continuing sobriety. One day at a time has now become one year, one month, and 17 days. I thank God every day for the love and help came from your wonderful Trinity Baptist Church and its loving congregation. If ever I can be of service to you, you need only to ask. My love and gratitude always. Reconcile. Renew. Restore. Resurrect. Now. you have never had that experience, that impression you feel right now inside of you, that spirit that touches you, <coughs> and you plan someday to trust Christ, you plan someday to say yes to him, today's that day, and now's the time. Maybe you've already trusted him in your heart. And you've not yet made it public. Jesus said, confess me before man, and I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. Everyone who followed Jesus when he was here followed him publicly. There were no secret followers. They publicly followed him. And so that's why we as Baptists give an invitation because he did. It is not my invitation. I do not want you to do a thing today except what Jesus wants you to do. And with all of my heart, I want to urge you to do what Jesus wants you to do. If this is the church where you feel God can bless you and use you and through which you can be a ministry to help us reconcile the whole world to Christ, then come be a part of this fellowship. Where do you come from? What do you have to bring? What do you have to say? What do you have to do? Just bring yourself. That's all it takes. There is nothing you have to do except say what they did in the first century. I will follow him. And the romance begins. The life begins. And goes on day after day after day. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and sing.